Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is February the 1st, 2012. This is episode 832 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we got a really cool show lined up for you today. I'm going to be bringing on the uh, line in just a minute, a dude named Darby Simpson. Darby is a uh, full-time farmer now, former mechanical, I guess not former mechanical engineer, but prior to being a full-time farmer, his full-time income came from being a mechanical engineer. And uh, he's going to talk to us about what it takes to become kind of a full-time farmer, kind of going back to his roots, how farming uh, and growing locally and buying locally all intermeshes with prepping and being prepared. And uh, he's also a long-time listener of the show, been listening to the show for over a year, very familiar with our community, and he's excited to be here. So I'll have him on in just a moment. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping make sure the show's for you here five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day, number one, Emergency Essentials. Their website is at BePrepared.com. So prepared that they got the domain BePrepared.com. I always thought the Boy Scouts would have had that. Apparently they have BePrepared.org, but it tells you something about the preparedness mentality of someone that ends up with that domain. And what will you find there? You'll find everything for your prepping needs, but specifically you'll find great stuff for long-term food storage, and you'll find a lot of information resources too, like food calculators to determine your caloric needs for long-term storage, and all other kinds of great stuff to get started. Again, BePrepared.com and the company's Emergency Essentials. Make sure you get their catalog. Get on their mailing list for their catalog. They send it out a few times a year, and it's kind of like, well, prepper porn. All the stuff that you think about adding to your preps, you know, just shows up in a little catalog, and it gives you a lot of great information, too. Next up today, Western Botanicals. You know, I'm a big believer in herbal, uh, herbal health. Uh, for day-to-day -day use, it's not so much as acute uh, treatment. There's some use of that as well. Uh, and I do a lot to grow my own herbs and wildly, uh, wildly gather my own herbs, but you can only do so much. And when I need something I don't have or can't find in my own backyard, I go over to Western Botanicals and I find what I'm looking for every time. Sometimes I think, you know, I want something, but I don't know what I need. So I call up their staff, and then real human beings answer the phone to give a damn about me, listen to me, understand my needs, and then make solid recommendations for what will help me. That's what it's like to deal with a real company that really cares, and that's what it's like to deal with Western Botanicals. You'll find their website at westernbotanicals.com. And remember, uh, Western Botanicals is a big-time supporter of the MSB. They have a premium members program. It costs 50 bucks a year. And then you get 25% discounts on everything they sell. So it's a great deal if you buy a lot of herbal stuff. But if you're MSB, you get your first year of membership for free. And if you want to keep your membership after that, you can keep it for half price or only 25 bucks a year. That's a hell of a deal and a lot of support for a company to offer to the MSB uh, and to the show in general. And they've also been a sponsor for almost three years now, long-time supporter of the show. And I already know that they're going to be renewing this spring when their contract comes up because they love working with you guys and they really care about what we're doing here at the show. Kyle Christensen over there is an awesome dude. He's been on the show a couple times, and uh, when you talk to him, you're not just talking to a naturopath and a, and a chiropractic doctor. You're talking to someone that practices what we preach here, uh, being prepared for times whether they get good, uh, whether they get you know whether they get tough, or even if they don't. 
Uh, that's really Kyle's philosophy and his business partner's philosophy and the way that their staff runs their operation. So check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and I often put out stories, information, and news on Twitter and Facebook that I do not have time to get on the air. So that's a great reason to follow us through one of those mediums. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you get $150 worth of free ebooks. You get discounts to over 32 vendors. And you support the show at a whopping 20 cents an episode. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, please email me the details of your service prior to joining, and I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service to our country. Uh, way to email me for that or any other reason, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com is my personal email. I do not answer all emails. It's just physically impossible at this point, but I generally try to read them all. All right. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I'm really excited about actually introducing our special guest today. Again, his name is Darby Simpson. He's a lifelong Indiana resident. He's the owner of Seventh Generation Farm. It's been in his family since 1828. But he really grew up not really learning anything about farming. He became a mechanical engineer. He worked in that field from 1994 to 2010. Uh, like many people, he was kind of run over by the recession, ended up losing his job. The family farm is now a full-time occupation. They can, he continues to do contract work and stuff like that. But in his own words, he kind of feels like Neo being unplugged from the Matrix now. Things make sense. Uh, life is good. It's not easy, but it's good. Uh, being a farmer's tough work. He's here to talk to us about that. And a lot more. And with that, hey, Darby, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Um, thanks for having me on. It's an absolute honor to uh, to be on the show today. Cool. Man, I'm glad to have you here with us. Um, and, you know, we're going to kind of talk about farming and local farming and, and kind of the way it, it, it bridges with homesteading. But this isn't something new for you. I mean, you go back quite a while. You want to tell folks a little bit about your farm and uh and uh, how you came to be the, the guy that's running it today, and, and how far back that goes. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I mean, my family uh, settled here in central Indiana. We're, we're just south of Indianapolis uh, back in 1828. And, um, you know, growing up as a kid, I mean, our farm was just traditional row crops, and my grandparents had some cattle and laying hens and things of that nature. But um, I actually didn't start out in farming I, when I showed the slightest inkling of wanting to go into farming when I was about five years old, I, I can remember my grandfather telling me, don't do it, go do something else. You can't make a living in farming anymore. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, he was right. It was 1979, 1980, and family farms were dropping like flies. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't a pretty picture on the horizon for farming. And shortly thereafter, my, my grandparents got rid of all the livestock and they just leased out all of, all of our farm to a, uh, another farmer here in the county. And, you know, they, they were uh, content at that point to snowbird to Florida and kind of retire. So I grew up and went and did something else, uh, went into mechanical engineering. Um, but, you know, back in 2006 and then in 2007, I really just had this urge to start doing something. And I started researching some enterprises back in, you know, 2004, um, kind of being a gardener at heart, I always sort of thought maybe I would um, have a second career doing vegetables. And I learned about Elliot Coleman and hoop houses and, and um, you know, high tunnels and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, uh, for a lot of reasons, we decided to uh, do livestock. Um, 
and that started in 2007 with 50 broilers after reading uh, Jill Salatin's book on it's called Pastured Poultry Profits. And you you kind of use this recession as a time to grow a business instead of have one implode. You uh, you lost your job like a few years ago, but over these past few years, you've turned this into your farm into a full time business. How do you manage to do that? Um. Well, I mean, it takes a lot of hard work. Um, you know, yeah, I got laid off in April of 2010 from my engineering position, and we really weren't planning to rely on the farm, and we didn't actually in 2010. But, um, it, you know, the the recession has taken a pretty big toll on my industry, and so while looking for another job, I mean, we really didn't have any choice. We just kind of hit the accelerator on the farm and tried to get it to be uh, profitable as quickly as we could. Um, but yeah, we start, you know, we started in 2007 and we started with 50 birds, uh, 50 pasture broilers. And in Salton's book, he's got this theory that, look, you start with 50 birds, you start small, realize you're going to screw it up. You're going to probably kill a bunch of them. Um, you know, but here's how you do it. And then what you do is you don't sell them. You, you give them away, you know, you, you give them away to neighbors or family members or, um, just, you know, people that are in your life just to get some feedback and to kind of, you know, to sort of kind of get it out there so people can taste real food and kind of, you know, what their appetite for it. And it's building a marketing funnel on top it, of it. It is. It is. So it's, you're gaining experience. You're, you're starting a marketing, um, system. You know, you're getting a product out there for people to try. And <clears throat> so that's what I did. You know, I went to family members and friends and coworkers and, you know, and after convincing a couple of them that, you know, I know I, this won't kill you uh, to eat a real chicken from a farm that I raised. Um, uh, you know, Matt, have- I, I got to stop you just there for a second, man, because it, I've seen it and it drives me crazy. So it's like, OK, well, you'll eat the regurgitated chicken nugget from McDonald's, slatter the fructose corn syrup they call sweet and sour sauce. And you're actually afraid to eat a chicken that ate bugs and grass and grain, real, you know, real grain, real seeds, uh, instead of a GMO plumped up chicken gristle nugget. And I, I just, it makes, I don't want to turn your interview into a rant or anything, but it just makes me realize how far we've fallen from like sanity. I, yeah. What? Ah. Anyway, please go ahead. I'm sorry. It just, no, no, that's fine. Sanity I mean, is unbelievable to me. It's know? a, it's a real issue. Um, you know, we're a couple of generations removed from, you know, a large percentage of our our society in the United States having all or some of their livelihood derived from agriculture. Yeah, it makes me think of we had one listener that wrote in. They had set up a few laying hens, and they're, you know, getting their eggs from their backyard now, and they gave some to a neighbor. And she was appalled that they ate, and I quote, eggs that came right out of the chicken's butt. As opposed to eggs that came out of a different chicken's butt in a factory farm. I, yeah, yeah. I, you know, that's what I'm saying. You know, where does she think her eggs come from? Yeah, they just, uh, people are very uneducated. I mean, look, Americans, all of us, okay, we have dem- demanded bigger, better, faster, cheaper. And the free market responded. Okay, now, is it is it better? No. But it's it's bigger, it's faster, and it's cheaper. You know, um, they just they've responded to what Americans have demanded. We've gone to a society that, you know, 50 years ago, 
I think it was, you know, about 25% of Americans, um, their, their livelihood was derived from agriculture. And now it's, it's less than 2%. You know, you know and I, I think people like would underplay even the 25%. If we had a town, you know, like where, let's say there was a Boeing plant and 25% of that town worked for Boeing and the other 75% didn't, you would, I would venture that somewhere between another 25 to 30% of the entire population of that town did something to support the Boeing plant sure. in the town. So yeah, you, you have 25% farmers, you have tremendous numbers of people doing peripheral support jobs, so the economy's actual agricultural component was probably closer to 50%. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. I mean, that's true with us. I mean, we, we use... You know, two different butchers um, that are family-owned businesses. We work with a grain mill that's a family-owned business. He's buying grain from other local farmers in central Indiana. Um, you know, so there's a definite cascade effect. I mean, it's a true local economy. And, um, you know, so you just you find yourself supporting all these other local small businesses. It just all kind of comes together. So, yeah, it's bigger than 25%. But... But yeah, people are just very disconnected from their food. They just kids don't realize that when they eat a chicken sandwich, that an animal had to die so that they could eat that chicken sandwich. It's just such a huge disconnect. Um, they don't know where it comes from. You know? No, they have no idea. It comes from a styrofoam tray with plastic over the top, or it comes from a drive-through window. Um, it comes in a bag and it's wrapped in the spreading crap. And right. exactly, it's. Uh, It's sad. Now, you focus almost, I would say exclusively, but mostly on livestock, especially yeah. from your profit side of things, and you focus on pasture-based meats. Why do you think that pasture-based meats are the way to go? What makes them uh, so important for like you know, our own health, the environment? And I know you refuse to use GMO, period. You will not use GMO feed. Why is that? Um, yeah, GMO... Um And this is probably one place where you and I disagree a little bit. Um, you know, I'm okay with hybrids. Um, Completely okay while, with hybrids. Yeah, and, and while I'm not pro-chemical, you know, occasionally we, we will get some grain that, you know, we, we get some roasted GMO-free soybeans, but the guy put one application of something, uh, chemical-based fertilizer down for, for one reason or another. Sure. I'm not crazy about that, but the fact is, is that, you know, your liver will look at that chemical when it enters your body and say, hey, that's bad. It's not supposed to be there. I'm going to filter that out for you. Your body looks at a genetically modified organism and says, I have no idea what the hell that is, and I don't know what to do with it. Um, I, to me, GMOs are just like evil incarnate, and <laughs> I don't fully, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I'm not a biological engineer. There's people out there that are way smarter than I am, but... They just, they scare me to death. And I've just, I've read too many studies with, you know, lab rats and things of that nature that have eaten GMOs and cancer and kidney damage. And I, when I put that out on the air, dude, they, I had people emailing me going, I'm not a rat. And I'm like, no, you're not. But if it kills a rat, you really don't want it because there's things a rat can eat that would kill you dead on the spot. Um, yeah. If it kills a rat, you really don't want it in your body. Yeah, I, I, two, two of the numbers I remember, and there's, there's a website out there. I want to say it's like gmoreport.com or something of that nature. Um, so if you do an internet search, um, you know, I'll get a little stick in here, hopefully not on Google. Um, you do an internet search on a non-Google search engine and, and look for 
that you can find it. But like there were some test rats that were the, the only thing they did was they, they gave one group GMO corn and the other group non-GMO corn. And like in the males, I want to say it was like testicular cancer. You were they're 80% more likely to have testicular cancer. And then the females, the pregnant females, like they lost 80 to 90% of their litter. Whatever. Spontaneous abortions, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, from, and the, the only variable in the test was GMO versus non-GMO grain. Yeah. And um, I will tell you, pictures are worth a thousand words. Um, last year, Indianapolis was fortunate enough to, to host the Acres USA conference and one of the sessions I sat in on, um, they 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 did kind of a similar experiment with uh, pigs, and a you know they they took groups to test pigs, and again the only difference was GMO versus non-GMO, and the stomach from the, the non-GMO pig uh, once they slaughtered it and examined it was you know very healthy, good color, you know like you would expect. They take the the GMO fed pig, and the stomach was was damaged. I mean, it was like black and purple and just like it didn't, like it just looked bad. Yeah. And again, pictures are worth a thousand words, but when you see stuff like that, I I don't need to be a biological mastermind to know that you've got a dude in a lab coat playing God. Yeah. I agree with that completely. You know, um, now, now the chemicals do concern me as well, though. But I, I'm with you on everything you said. But when we start doing something like we're going to use soy-based feeds, and then we're going to use a Roundup-ready soybean, it's not just that the chemical was used. It, you've literally saturated the plant, saturated right. the ground with glyphosate. And then I'm feeding it to a pig, and then bioaccumulation takes effect, and the more pig I eat, the more I bioaccumulate that. So to me, the glyphosate, the atrazine, these other chemicals are a pretty big concern. They are. When you, are. Especially when you marry them with GMO, because it makes their application so much heavier. It, it, right. You know what I mean? Because I'm with you. I, I'm not like trying to get rid of every toxin that there is out there. We get 10,000 toxins a day in our body. Our bodies are remarkably effective at removing them. It's when we go into overload on specific toxins. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. So we're fortunate enough that we have a grain mill here in central Indiana where they have a certified organic line of grains. And um, uh, to get, uh, and I don't want to get into certified organic debate today, um, but to get certified organic with row crops, you have to play by the organic rule book for 36 months. And, and basically that is, it cannot be GMO. You can't use any chemicals of any kind. Uh, it has to be a certain distance from another field. You know, there's got to be a, a break there uh, between crops for, you know, contamination issues and whatnot. Um, and so during that three-year period, it's that's referred to as the transitional period. And so that's what we purchase are the transitional organic grains. So we're very fortunate in that we rarely, rarely get a non-GMO grain with chemicals on it uh, in any of our feed mixes. And then we, we do use a certified organic line of supplements uh, from a company called Helter Feeds in Illinois. And that is, you know, uh, fish meals and, and we'll, we'll call it a multivitamin, okay, uh, for, for piggies and chickens. Uh, that gets mixed in with the roasted soybeans, and that's important for anybody out there, roasted soybeans, not soybean meal, um, mm. which is the stuff they use to get oils um, removed from soybeans when it's meal. Is, that's, that's not happy stuff. Um, 
so anyway, we, we get all this stuff mixed in bulk and then brought down to our farm. And uh, we're very fortunate that we can be GMO free. As far as the advantages of being on pasture, it's it's numerous. I mean, it's the the health of the animal um, when you're outside. You know, the manure is not building up in a barn in a confined space, and so then you don't have to use you know medications and vaccines and things of that nature to um, keep the animals healthy. You're spreading the manure on grass uh, or in the woods, and I mean, obviously that that does wonders for the soil and soil building and um, little microbes and, and, you know, things of that nature. And then, you know, the, the biggest thing is, um, honestly, well, there's, there's a couple of things. I mean, the animals are happy because they're outside. Sure. They get, they get act like an animal. I mean, God forbid we let a, a chicken act like a chicken and scratch in the dirt and eat a bug or a worm or a piece of clover. Um, but the, uh, you know, Look, minerals, when there was a guy that was just on it once, maybe like last week, and I, his name escapes me. It's a guy from Australia. Yeah, Steve Solomon. Okay, yeah. The, um, uh, was talking about all the, the minerals in the soil. And so if you, you know, take that and apply it to grass, it, it's the same thing. Sure. So, like, how, how mineral dense is an animal going to be that's been raised on a concrete pad? You know, I, okay, and then you're taking, you're giving it grain uh, that was probably raised in a row crop field that's been poorly managed, hasn't been managed in an organic fashion. There's no green manure put back into the soil or things of that nature, so it's it's mineral deficient. Um, the whole thing is deficient of nutrition. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I would also say, like, you know, people talk about the animals being happy, and I, I completely concur with that. And I'm have empathy for animals that are eventually going to be slaughtered, but I'm happy to do it and I'm happy to eat them. And it's not like I sit up at night tossing and turning because a chicken might be abused in a Tyson plant. If I thought one second of misery for each Tyson chicken, I would never get a wink sleep. But if I were to take all the empathy out and, and not really just say it's an animal who cares, and it's not what I would do. I'm just trying to make a really important point here. If that animal is miserable and stressed its entire life, and for a broiler, you have 40 days of, of misery before it breaks its own leg and gets slaughtered. As, as few as 35, actually. Okay, so there you go. But 35 days of misery. Then I have 35 days of stress on that animal, and I have 35 days of the animal's own endocrine system pumping stress hormones yeah. through the animal. If I have a happy chicken, I don't have a whole bunch of stress hormones. So, you know, people talk about hormone-free chicken, and, and, and there's kind of like a mythology there because even the mass-produced chicken, they don't use hormones. They're not allowed to. No, no. But Our the chickens make their own freaking hormones if you constantly – if you take a rat, put him in a cage, and stress him nonstop, eventually he just falls over and dies. Well, what do you think does that? It's hormones and heart attack. Right, yeah. Um yeah, no, you're right. I mean, hormones, uh, for those that don't know, uh, those were outlawed decades ago. Uh, but there are other tricks that, that Big Ag uses, um, and a couple of the big guys got in trouble uh, a couple, three years ago. They, they were labeling their chicken as antibiotic-free, mm-hmm. and and technically that was true. <laughs> uh, the, the, the chicken was, was antibiotic-free. What they did was they, they took the egg and they put a needle into it and they gave the embryo a loading dose of antibiotics to oh, get wow. it through that 35 to 40 days um, So that, because they can't survive in the confinement well, yeah. without help. I mean, they just can't. Um, 
you know, and then there's other little things they do. I mean, they're, they're given trace amounts of arsenic, which your government assures you is perfectly safe and, and, and fine. Go ahead and feed that to your kids. It's okay. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Move along. Um, you know, it's just um, the arsenic does a couple of things. It acts as a, uh, a means to help ward off, you know, certain bacteria and stuff, I believe. And then, But the one thing I know it does is it will actually in trace amounts, it will simulate hunger. So they'll eat faster. And grow bigger, faster. Bigger, better, faster, cheaper. Yeah. yeah. We want chicken breast, and we want it now, and we want it for 99 cents a pound on sale. And we want it plump and juicy and full of fat. Well, it's it's... It's it's plump and full of stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, one thing I want one thing I wanted to be sure and mention today, um, you know, like a lot of people have probably seen Food Inc. or heard about Food Inc. and that's a that's a great documentary and the thing I love about it is it's very nonpartisan. Absolutely. Um, but um, you know, people really need to become an educated consumer and know what you're feeding your family and and I, the and actually I heard this from Salton years ago and I wish I had a copy of this and I, I wanna say it was Michigan State University that did a study that they Basically, you know, you'll you'll read, you know, that something a chicken can be ten to twelve percent fluid by weight. So I think it was like I said, I think it was Michigan State said, well, what is that ten to twelve percent fluid anyway? So if you know anything about how chicken is butchered, um, you know, the the, con, the confinement factory farm. I tell people this all the time at the farmers market. That's the happy side. That's the good side. <laughs> What you saw on Food Inc. was was the was the happy half. Okay? Yeah. The bad side is the processing. I mean, first of all, they all get electrocuted. Then they're mechanically eviscerated. And yeah. um, that's not an exact way to remove guts out of a chicken. And you can imagine. I mean, that knife goes in there and grabs all that stuff. The fecal matter goes everywhere. Because sure. all the meat, it's now contaminated. So, well, how do we make it not contaminated anymore? Well, what we'll do is we'll take and dunk that chicken in a chlorine bleach bath up to 40 times yeah. to, to make it, quote-unquote, safe for human consumption. <laughs> and, uh, you know, those things fill up with sludge, and you jostle it around, and there's there's basically poop suspended in the water. And what does meat do? It absorbs moisture. So yeah. by the time it's done, it's 10 to 12% fluid by weight. And basically what, what the university came back and said was that when they tested that fluid, they basically defined it as fecal soup. Oh, great. Your chicken is yellow for a reason. Mm. It smells and it's slimy. Yeah. And if you just go buy one locally raised chicken, and I don't mean go to Whole Foods, although I'm not opposed to Whole Foods, but it's still, it's mass butchered. It's basically yeah. the same thing. I mean, you I got mechanically you. fed chicken and you butcher it the same way, you got the same problem. Go find a local farmer, even if he's feeding GMOs because that's all you can get a hold of. It's You're, you're better off than what you get from a supermarket. Yeah, we buy um, pastured poultry here, and the, you, you're right. You can look at it and see the difference. Yeah, it doesn't smell. It's not slimy. It doesn't and then, stink. The, yeah. the great part is, is that it, it actually tastes good, and you might actually get excited about cooking and eating. And lo and behold, you, you might make it more of a priority to you know do that with your family and sit down as a family and have a meal um, as opposed to flying through a drive-thru, and I'm not slamming people for doing that. I'm just saying it's funny how buying uh, a high-quality product that tastes good gets you excited about being at home and cooking. And and food is, is fellowship and being around family. I mean, that's, you know, that's really what it's all about in the end, right? Oh, absolutely. 
Um, you kind of look at small-scale farming as like a national security issue. You want to chat about that a little bit? Yeah, um, and that, you know, might strike some people as a little odd, um, but I really do. I mean, yeah, terrorists are bad, and and there's things we have to deal with, you know, that's like national security, you know, military-type stuff, but when you really stop and examine, I, I guess I'd... My point is that people probably don't realize, maybe a lot of listeners to this show do, people don't realize like how dangerous vertical integration is. Um, we are growing a whole bunch of grain in the Midwest, and we are shipping that to, you know, a number of factory farms um, and that are, you know, condensed and... Um, you know, and then all the meat's butchered in a couple of big plants in, you know, Chicago or Kansas City or, or whatever, and then redistributed throughout the whole country. And, you know, if we wake up tomorrow morning and diesel fuel is nine bucks a gallon, you know, that, that <laughs> one of two things is going to happen, or more likely both. Um, your food is, is going to get really expensive really fast. Um, or more likely, uh, you're not going to have access to it. I mean, you could look at something like Hurricane Katrina um, that, um, you know, could have affected an entire region and did affect an entire region with, you know, certain certain foods. And uh, if you think about how we do pork and beef and, and poultry as a country, uh, we've got just a few areas that are raising all this food. And if, you know, one or two of them go down, I mean, it puts a there's a huge gap to fill there for those products. Whereas, you know, um, you know, like our, our business, I'm not interested. I mean, not only am I not interested in selling outside of Indiana, I'm not interested in selling outside of central Indiana. You know, I mean, if somebody wants to drive here from somewhere and buy a bunch of stuff, you know, I'll be happy to sell it to them. But sure. You know, we're, we're not, um, trying to, you know, go across state lines or, you know, even south of Bloomington or north of Pocomo. I mean, that's just... Has it ever stricken you as kind of odd that uh, they talk about uh, decentralization and uh, what's the other word? Were you deregulation and how it's supposed to create more diversity and everything and all it tends to lead to in the political conception of these terms is consolidation? Uh, yeah, before yeah. we had all this deregulation and decentralization in agriculture, there were a million guys doing what you're doing. And, and now, um, the guys that are doing what you're doing are all plugged into a common system. It's, uh. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's economies of scale, you know, um, and that's what kills small farms. Um, that, and, you know, I mean, a lot of farmers don't want to sell stuff. They just want to farm. Sure. You know, so they want to raise animals and, you know, work on tractors and, um, haul stuff off and sell it and be done. They're not, you know. And a lot of our grain farmers, they're not even full-time farmers anymore. They just basically own the land and they right. hire help. And it's just it's just a corn factory or a soy factory or a yeah, wheat I mean, factory. It's not it's not anything even close to what you're doing. No, I mean you're driving a big tractor and and spraying chemicals out the ass end. Yeah, I mean you know, and I, I'm not slamming any of those guys. I mean they I, I know them. Uh, I, I live amongst them. They, they work hard. Sure they there's do. A lot, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of risk. But, you know, they're just 
putting down the chemical that the sales guy told them to put on that year because that was going to get the best results. Um, yeah. They're not really thinking about, you know, what they're doing. But, um, yeah, so by decentralizing, truly decentralizing, and having lots of little small farms, you know, where like our farm, um, you know, we might supply, I don't know, 50 to 100 families if we were just going to say how many families can we supply in terms of protein requirements. You know, if I go out, well, I only affect that 50 to 100 families. But, um, you know, we've got a bunch of, uh, you know, the big factory uh, chicken and especially turkey farms down in southern Indiana in the Amish country. And so if a bunch of tornadoes go through and, and wipe out, you know, there's two or three spots, I mean, you can affect an entire region. Yeah, and it, it, the thing is, it doesn't even have to wipe out the producers. If it wipes out the processing facility, you end up with a glut on the supply end and you can't get it over to the demand end. Right, exactly. And that's, that's the, that's one of the other dangers is, okay, well, these birds, I mean, gosh, they're done at day 35. They gotta go. They don't do well by day 40 either. No, they, they, they literally don't. begin to collapse under their own frame because they're bred for this rapid growth. They, they have heart attacks. And, um, so that's, that's another danger of using, you know, we've taken just in time manufacturing principles and we've applied it to agriculture. Which now we're introducing biology and biology has time limits. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, we, we use, um, only because I haven't found anything better yet. I've got a couple of things I'm, I'm looking at testing this year, but we use those same broilers that the confinement industry uses. Sure. Um, but we get them from a small family owned, uh, hatchery in, in southern Michigan that he ships them on a Monday afternoon. I have them by Tuesday morning. There's very little stress. And put them on pasture. I mean, yeah, you experience losses. You ha- they have heart attacks. They struggle with the heat. There are issues there. So, yeah, in, in our system, uh, we're doing about 500 broilers at a time, and we're taking them to a small family-owned butchering facility, which is about 90 miles from our farm. Uh, and that's actually the nearest facility, at least in central Indiana, that, that will be poultry. Um, and, you know, that, that's another logistical issue you got to do with. And it's, it, we can back up just a little bit. I mean, that's, you know, look, 20 years ago, you had two or three butchering facilities in every county. And now, at least in my area of the country, you know, you're doing well if you have one butchering facility for every two or three counties. And hardly anybody wants to do poultry. I mean, it's a lot of work. Uh, our, our facility is it's owned by an Amish family. Um, so, you know, we're doing 500 birds at a time. And our economies of scale are pretty good, but using the transitional organic grain, I mean, I don't mind telling people it costs us around, you know, two fifty uh, a pound or a little bit more just to raise the product. And so we, you know, we retail it for, for three ninety nine, call it four bucks. So if everything goes perfect and it never does, stuff always blows up in your face. You know, we might make five to six bucks per per broiler. Uh, I want to stop you right there just a second so people can let that sink in because here's what I've been saying about what's wrong with our food. Perfectly explained. You guys can make a profit selling a bird for probably 15, 16, 18 bucks of about $5. Right, exactly. If I go to Costco or Sam's, I can buy a rotisserie cooked chicken that's going to weigh two to two and a half pounds more than the bird I'll get from you. It's been completely cooked, seasoned, put into a packaging, and ready to go home and be eaten. And I have to take your chicken and put the inputs in to cook it. 
Right. That does not say that there's anything wrong with your product. What it says is there's something very wrong with the rotisserie supermarket chicken for $4.99. It's not possible to produce a quality product of food and make a profit at that price without taking some serious shortcuts like soaking it in poop soup, like you were saying earlier. Right. Um, it's just a flat-out reality And I would say anybody that would balk at the cost of a, of a pasture-raised bird, go out and do it for yourself and see what it actually takes to get it done. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is. The farming is, it, man, it's hard. I mean, you're <laughs> dealing with elements. Um, you're, in the, you're in the heat, you're in the cold, you're in the wind, you're in the rain. I, I've told people this, and I, I mean this sincerely. I, like, the only job I know of that's harder would be like being the pastor of a church because then then you're you you know you're 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 you have a really tough job with a group you of have people. your problems and everybody else's too <laughs> yes exactly you know but and you like, have I, to do the job you have to be extremely empathetic so when right. somebody brings you your problems as a pastor you're going to feel a lot more than let's say uh, a government psychologist would Right. Yeah. But outside of that, I don't know anything that's harder. Not to say there aren't jobs that are more dangerous, like being yeah. a policeman or a firefighter, but that's that's harder. I mean, it is just a monumental amount of work, and it it takes a toll on your body physically. Um, you got two things you got me thinking about here. The first one I want to kind of bounce off you. You were talking about the number of butchers, and generally speaking, in most businesses, we don't like to see competition. To me, I think that like there's a perfect example of why we need more people doing what you're doing. If there were more producers, there would be there would be more butchering facilities. The the the, the market will meet the demand. Right. Yes, it will eventually. Yes. Um, but it, I tell you what, man. It's I mean butchering chicken, and I, I've done it. You know, first Allison's book. We we butchered our first batch. And yeah. I'm glad for the experience. Um, It was a, it was a big learning experience. I'm glad we did it. But my wife and I got done at the end of that day, and that that you talk about a no brainer. <laughs> we were like, man, we're we're gonna you know uh, contact this butchering facility, whatever it costs. We're just gonna you know if it's when it's all said and done, I mean, if it's a buck a pound to, to get it done, uh, that's what we're gonna do, or we're not gonna do chickens. I mean, it was that simple. I I had a um, um, an acquaintance of mine that lives south of here that had told me, you know, they did their own butchering uh, for the first year, and then the next year uh, they had mentioned that they started using this butchering facility. I was like, oh, that's 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 nuts, you know. Why would you do that? That's really expensive, and it's really far away, and gosh, you got to, you know, have all these crates to load them in. There's a huge expense there, and on and on and on. Of course, I had to butcher my own chicken jet. Yeah. yeah. And I got done that day, and I thought, they are a genius. <laughs> you know, and God bless Bill Salton, you know, for butchering 20,000 birds on farm. Um, it's awesome that, that, first of all, that they want to do that and have the facilities do that. And and secondly, it's great that uh, they're allowed to do that in the state of Virginia. And that's something that anybody who's considering doing this enterprise or any kind of farming enterprise, you, you need to know your state laws. Sure. Uh, you know, in the state of Indiana – You can only do a thousand birds on farm per year, and there's some, you know, some some loopholes there. I mean, technically, you're not supposed to butcher it and sell it off farm. You know, you have to butcher it on farm when it's sold, and and uh, you know, give it to the uh, the person who's getting it basically that day. 
So, you know, every state's different. And before you, you know, lunge headlong into this, you need to be sure that you understand uh, whatever enterprise it is. You know, if it's livestock or fruits and vegetables or dairy or whatever, know the laws, know what the limitations are, talk with people in your state that are doing it um, so that they can make you aware of what some big pitfalls are. Now, the other thing you have me thinking of is, I don't know what I can do about the hard part, but the expense. So, you know, I'm kind of a long-term thinker, and when I look at what the cost of feed of these birds is, I start to thinking, especially like you, you guys are only using like 10 to 15 acres, but you have 300. Right. And on a long-term plan, are you guys looking towards some things you can do to grow more food on your own land in a perennial fashion? So, I mean, like a natural fit is if you start planting chestnut trees and, and stuff like that, uh, or oaks or, or anything like that, then it's, that's a feed source for your hogs. And it's a feed source that kind of at certain times of year, you just, it masks and you run them underneath there. And to me, like for longevity sake, that's how a lot of you guys that are in the small production world have to start thinking because you can only buy and truck around so much soy and corn, even uh, properly grown stuff. Yeah, um, I've got I've got a couple of responses actually to that. I mean, have I thought about that stuff? Yes. Um, am I thinking about it more? Yes. Uh, and just as a quick side note, in you know January of, of 2011, so basically a year ago, uh, January 1st, you know we were paying. I want to say like eight or nine cents a pound for our transitional organic corn by the end of February. So 60 days later, not even 60 days, uh, the cost of that corn went up 104%. Wow. And, you know, fortunately we were in our down part of the year where we were just feeding a few pigs and, and some layers. Um, we, you know, the broilers uh, are very much a, you know, six or seven month on, uh, six month off, you know, situation because you're doing it on pasture and they can't hack the uh, unless you're in the deep south and it's, you can do it nine months out of the year and take the summer off. But, um, you know, is it, is it on my mind? Yes. For me, there's an issue there. We are, we're using 20 acres of our family farm. Um, we're getting ready to convert 20 more acres into perennial grass uh, this coming spring so that we can do more grass-fed beef and hopefully start doing some lamb. So that is an exactly an example of what I'm talking about. It is. It is. The thing I'm battling, at least in my own personal situation, and if you've got access to that much property, is that, you know, you have to make it pay for itself. And, you know, taxes on a 300-acre farm aren't exactly cheap. I and mean, thankfully in Indiana, they're not they're not terrible. I mean, if our farm was back east, we, we, we would have had to have sold it a long time ago. I've got friends that have moved here from back east, from New York, for example, and they're you know, told me, like, there's no way you'd be able to afford to hold on to your farm just due to the property taxes. Um, but you still have to pay for those property taxes and upkeep and things of that nature. So, you know, these fields, a lot of them have been in traditional row crops for so long. And, you know, our family and our farm is no different than anybody else. You've got to wean yourself off of that money that's coming in slowly. You can't just go cold turkey and, and switch it all. I mean, So you're primarily leasing that land at this point? Yes. And there's probably a lot of guys in that situation right there. And I think that's something that, you know, people like me that are always clamoring for the permaculture ethics and all need to understand that a lot of the people we're saying need to do this stuff are in that exact kind of scenario and it has to be done in phases. 
Yes, it does. I mean, we've been fortunate. We've converted 15 acres of row crop back to, to perennial grasses thus far. And we're getting ready to convert 20 more. And we've been using the pigs to clean up an old pasture area that's now all overgrown and, and pretty nasty with shrubs and briars and, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, we're using them to convert that. And um, I actually, in certain areas back there, I actually leave my pigs in there for extended periods of time. I mean, they, they totally trash it, um, which, you know, I'm sure a lot of people right now are going, oh, no, that's bad, that's bad. And, you know, long term it is, but, you, you know, look, hogs are, hogs are phenomenal animals. They are four-wheel drive tractors with a built-in plow. Correct. And will work for food. <laughs> and they'll, they'll produce food at the same time. You leave them in an area that's all overgrown for an extended period of time, and all the little trees and saplings and, and briars and all that crap that you want out of the way, they'll they'll take it out. They'll, they'll root it up and destroy it. And now what happens is that sunlight can get into the soil, and the natural seed bank allows grasses to come back. And now we've got something we can work with. Now we can come in and we can do more of a traditional rotational grazing with pigs or cattle or sheep or whatever it is you're doing. And, and to me, unlike going through there and tilling it or just yanking it out or burning it, they actually leave it better than they found it because they've left a massive amount of organic matter there in their waste, and they only eat what they like, and the rest of it, they end up rooting it into the soil and, and, and tilling it for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like the the biggest thing for us is they're, they're taking out all these little bitty trees that are that are you know it's so overgrown. And I, you know, I don't have the time or sure. or the the money to go in there with tractors and equipment and people and chainsaws and, and clean all this stuff up. So what I do is I, I take the bush hog and I basically kind of drive. You know, looks like a a, a drunk Irishman uh, driving you know through this this old overgrown area between the big trees. And we're keeping the big trees, we're thinning out the little trees, we're, we're kind of trying to get to this sort of a savanna, you know, sure. open forest concept where, okay, now we've got some more mature trees, we can put the cattle in there in August when it's just blistering hot here in central Indiana, it can get up to 110, 115 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you know, ambient temperature. Uh, or we can put them there in the winter when they need a windbreak and it's, it's minus 20 outside. Uh, it gives them an area to go to get some shelter. Um, so there's there's a lot of lot of great things you can you can do with hogs. And um, but yeah, you have to you have to watch the economics of it. I mean, you, you can have an uh, you know an epiphany like I did uh, with food and and w- what it is you're eating, what it is you're feeding your family. But you got to make the numbers work, or you'll you know. What, what, you can't be an idealist. I mean, you, you can be, but you have to be restrained. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is, in your opinion, as far as livestock, what's the most profitable? I mean, it seems to me that raising uh, something like beef or pork would take less work per unit produced or per pound produced and should theoretically, as long as you have the land to support them, be a better margin business than chickens. It's just that chickens are easy to start with. They are. Um, yeah, there are pros and cons each way, and you really have to figure out what works for you and how much land you have. And it, even if you only own, like, five or ten acres, you know, now you're probably, at least with livestock, not going to be able to support your family from that unless you, you have a very low, you know, monetary income requirement. Uh, 
but you could definitely, you know, start raising some pigs if you have five acres of forest and making a very nice side income um, to supplement your your regular nine to five job or, or what have you, and raise some, you know, some meat for your family, um, which you know obviously that gets back to being prepared and just being less dependent on the system. Um, broilers are definitely by far the most labor-intensive uh, animal there is, and they're the most grain-intensive as well. I mean, we move ours in portable chicken tractors every 24 hours. We don't let them out in nets um, and, you know, like poultry nets or anything like that. We have these these wonderful critters called red-tailed hawks, which are protected, uh, and they like to feast on little chickens running around. Absolutely. So, we, uh, we keep them in portable chicken tractors, which uh, I started out with salads and skins, and they were just, at least for me, with the humidity here, they were just an adjunct failure. And so I kind of kind of crafted my own chicken tractor, if you will. I took the plan from another guy and really modified it for broilers. But anyhow, um, the thing about broilers is you get your money back really fast. So, you know, if you've got a couple thousand bucks to invest – you can theoretically, if you, if you pre-sell all the chicken, which is what we did the first two years. I mean, we we only raised chicken based on what we knew we were going to sell. We took orders and had commitments to buy it ahead of time. And, sure. Um, you know, you get your money back in eight and a half nine weeks, so it's a really quick turnaround time. But again, it, it's it's very grain intensive. I moved them every day. At best, we're probably getting you know fifteen percent, may, maybe twenty percent, sometimes. Uh, where they're, that percentage of intake is actually coming from the pasture, where they're eating the grasses and the clovers and bugs and stuff like that. The Cornish Cross is a really lazy chicken. I mean, it's been bred to, you know, sit in a confinement cage and eat grain and get fat. And when you, when you force them to move, they're like, oh, hey, look, all this fresh green stuff. I guess I'll go ahead and eat it since you made me get up and walk. <laughs> um, and uh, it really adds a lot to the flavor as well. That's another benefit of being on pastures. The grass, especially the clovers, the sweet aromatic uh, clover really adds the flavor. But, you know, so that, that's that's the one thing. Most labor-intensive, a quick turnaround. At profit margin, it's not a high-margin thing. Um, cattle, How does it compare with cattle? That's kind of what I'm getting at. I, I know yeah. cattle's a longer cycle, right? But what's the margin difference? Is it a much better margin per, per pound, let's say? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. But when you look at, when you, you know, when you start looking at the numbers, you know, Excel will never lie to you, okay? Uh, it will always tell you the truth. And it will tell you that based on the number of hours, you know, and land that you put into a product, I mean, this is your return per hour or per acre or however you want to look at it. So yeah, I mean, you're not if you're doing 100% grass-fed beef and, and lamb, and you should be. You should never give a ruminant grain, and that's that's a discussion for another day. But uh, grain ruminants bad. Don't do it. You know. Completely agree. You're fermenting. You're making alcohol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you really are. You're, you're you're. That's where all the really you know bad E. coli that kills people comes from giving grain to ruminants. It's agreed. That, it's that biologically simple. Um, so. Yeah, you don't have all these inputs, um, so you're just eating grass, which is free. I mean, God gives us sunshine and rain and, and grass, and, you know, fortunately the government hasn't figured out how to tax or charge us for those things yet. So uh, so long as you own the land or can lease the land, um, 
you know, that that's it's very profitable in that regard. But grass-fed beef, you, I mean, you're, you're talking a minimum of 24 months and more likely 30 to 36 months to go from birth to an animal that's, that's ready to go to the butcher. Well, that's a lot of time that that animal can have problems. That's a lot, that's a lot of time. Yeah, it is, you got a longer risk. Um, you know, and I mean, let's... And see, here's where I have problems with some of this stuff. So, like, I've been watching this show. I can't remember what it's called. But it's about this guy's a vet, and a lot of his clients are farmers that are doing organic farming. And occasionally they'll have a cow uh, that's a meat cat, a meat animal, or even a dairy animal that will need antibiotics. Just That's the only way we're going to save the animal. Right. And then what happens is that guy ends up having to sell the animal off to a conventional operation because it's been tainted from a, uh, an organic standpoint. And there, there's one of my issues. I don't care if my farmer medicates a, a, a cow in, in June and then slaughters it next June and it had that treatment to get it through that problem. I'm not even remotely concerned about that. What I care about is, you know, what the chicken industry was doing until they, you know, they kind of changed the way they were marketing things where they were just saturating the animal and you know, marinating it for 35 days in penicillin. That's that was my concern. Sure. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm kind of there with you. Um, fortunately, we've never had to use a, a sub therapeutic antibiotic uh, mm-hmm. to, to save an animal. Um, the, the pigs get a little rowdy sometimes, and they'll bite and you know get playing, and or you know they'll get cut or lacerated. So we've used uh, you know the the, uh, the Walmart band of uh, a brand of um, you know uh, triple antibiotic ointment, you know Neosporin, if you will, sure. um, which is just a topical thing, but. Now, what I've always told people is if I ever did have to do that, I mean, we would, we would, you know, take that animal out. That's what, you know, we would eat it. And, uh, obviously it wouldn't be a business expense at that point. It'd just be something we raised for ourselves. Um, or we would still sell that animal to one of our customers and we would give them some kind of a discount because it's below our standard, but we wouldn't go sell it on the conventional market. Yeah. Uh, you know, our customers, there's a variety of reasons they come to us. Some of them are, you know, they, it's it's all about you know was the animal happy? Uh, was it in a confinement you know uh, industry? They're very empathetic. Some people want true organic. Some people just want to support local economy. Uh, some people like food that actually tastes like food. You know, and tastes good. How uh, big is the I don't want GMOs market right now? Um, not nearly as big as it should be. It, really, it, it concerns me. Um, you know, I'm like you know one of the the lot, well, a lot of farmers markets we do. I mean, th- there's really only one or two other producers in Central Indiana that consistently use GMO free grain, and I send people to them when I'm out of something or if they're closer to them. You know, I'll say, hey, you need, you need to go see this guy. You know, or yeah, whatever. But see, I honestly believe right now that a large portion of this country is buying organic, not because they want everything that organic offers, but in the mass market anyway, it's the only way to be sure you're not eating GMOs. Um, yes, that is true. And that was true for my wife and I before we started farming. That's that's why we bought it. Um, it was a safer option. Correct. You know? But see, like even in, in – and I, again, I don't want to get – I don't want to go too far down the, the organic rabbit hole here. <laughs> um, um, you know, if we take a bottle of organic ketchup, it depends on the product. You got to know your product. Sure. Thirty percent, I believe it is, and I could be mistaken, but I think it's thirty percent of that bottle of ketchup can be made with conventional ingredients. Hmm. Okay. 
And so if we want organic beef, you know, people say, well, are you certified organic? No, I'm better than organic. Sure. You know, we, we actually uh, use the term that Joel Salton coined, beyond organic. Um, you can take a cow, okay, and you just picture in your mind right now, in your mind's eye, that conventional cattle barn where, you know, they're standing knee-deep in manure, they eat nothing but corn or whatever crap they're given that day, and uh, they're injected with wormers and vaccinations and antibiotics and all that stuff, okay? So you've got that picture in your mind. Now, this is what we're going to do. If we want to get organic certification, uh, we're going to give them organic corn. We're going to stop the antibiotics. We're not going to stop the wormers. We're not going to stop the vaccine. Correct. They're going to keep standing in knee-deep manure. Uh, they're never going to eat fresh grass or fresh, you know, or, or, or hay. Might maybe eat a little bit of hay. And we can get a lovely green USDA organic sticker. Yeah, and see, I've never been sold on that, especially with meats. Um, it, it's been a lot easier to sell me an organic pepper than an organic oh, yeah. piece of steak because the pepper at least has some level of assurances. With the meat, everything you just said is true, where I know if I go out and find a local person selling beef or lamb or pork and it's been pastured and fed mostly grass, I know what it ate. And even if it doesn't, it, even if there's some reason it wouldn't qualify as organic, maybe, like you said, the, 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 the pasture was conventionally farmed two years ago and there's still some fertilizer and, and chemical residues there. I am much happier to eat that piece of black Angus than USDA organic beef out of Whole Foods because the it's it's the whole thing. Like I said, it's also just like the chickens. When you put cows into this highly confined state, it's a it's a stress level. And I don't mind cows being high density rotational grazing because that's a that's a natural state for a cow. That's that's how wildebeest stay alive on the Serengeti. That reduce it's like schooling fish. But when we put them in a in a in a barn and they don't see light and they're you know just the way they get treated in that environment, you've got to have just massive amounts of stress hormone in that animal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it affects the quality and taste and texture of the meat. Um, you know, like when we load up pigs, take them to the butcher, which you know I, I did yesterday actually, and took some this morning. I always try and load them the day before, as early in the day as possible. And uh, because when you you know when you get them in the trailer, I mean it's not terribly stressful, but there's some stress and anxiety there. And every once in a while you get one that really doesn't want to be in there, and it upsets the rest of them. But once they're in there for a few hours, they settle down, okay, and they're calm, and they sleep in there overnight. I take them in the next morning, and they, they kind of walk off the trailer, you know, to the butcher, and they're pretty calm. And the reason I do that um, is because, uh, you know, I don't want those stress levels up. I don't want their adrenal glands opened up and pumping through their body and making the meat pop. You know, uh, I remember the very first time I used a, a local butcher, you know, the guy helped me unload them. Just went and grabbed the shock stick and started started shocking my animals, and I I ripped him a new one, you know. Um, <laughs> and I never went back there. Yeah. You know, there's really if you if you work with the animals and you're in there with them every day. I mean, pigs especially, they're like dogs. They're they're like dogs that you can eat, but they're like dogs. They're highly intelligent. You get some that you know they're kind of like yeah yeah he's here again. They'll just leave the food and go away, pal. And then you have others that literally run up to you snorting and pawing you around. And they want their ears scratched. They'll drop down or roll over once their belly rubbed. I mean, they're 
they're amazing creatures. And um, uh, you just, you know, you don't want to stress them out if, if you don't need to. Yeah. Uh, but back, you know, back to your question about profitability. I mean, if I had to pick one thing uh, in terms of bang for the buck and profitability and what you can sell it for, at least for me, it's been pork. That that has that's that's been the sweet spot for us because you can go and and purchase you know a weaned piglet at we'll say at fifty to seventy five pounds. You train them to electric pretty easily. You know we use all portable stuff, portable uh, fencing and solar chargers. Uh, although there's definitely a case to be made for using you know on all the time hardwired uh, chargers if, if you can swing it um, and. Um, you get that big train to the electric pretty easily. And with uh, with pasture, you know, I mean, you can get 25, 35% of the intake from the land. You know, a pig, a pig will convert anything into meat. I mean, if it's sure. roots, tubers, grasses, tree leaves, they love dogwood leaves. Um, you know, they're just working from sun up to sun down. That's what they do. They root and they eat. And then the grain's there. We just, we put it in a, a big portable one-ton feeder um, that I bought used for 50 bucks and put a skid on it. I, I pulled around the little Japanese mini truck into the next paddock and we filled up and th- they eat when they want to and they've got fresh water and the whole system portable so when they wipe out an area we move them but um, you know pork, I, I, even before we got into this my wife and I quit eating pork out of the supermarket years ago because it, I mean it wasn't that it tasted bad, it just it didn't really taste like anything. Well that's just, it tastes like nothing. That's yeah, exactly what like it tastes like. It tastes like nothing. It's just like this this, this molecular gook. And, and I know. know all the problems with modern egg, but I'm not sure when exactly that happened because even in the 70s, supermarket pork had some level of, of flavor to it. And maybe I was spoiled because we had a kind of a local butcher that brought meat, you know, locally grown meat around too as well. But I remember being able to go to the store and buy some pork chops and throw them on the grill and they tasted like pork. And today yeah. they taste like nothing. Well, I, there may be twofold, Jack. Um, do you remember, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, you know, pork, the other white meat? Yeah. That's a load of crap. Pork is red meat. You know, I hate to burst anyone's bubble out there if you're looking for a chicken substitute, but it, it ain't pork, at least not real pork. It's Pork is a red meat. Um, and it, it was bred out because of, you know, the whole push towards heart health and cholesterol and, you know, fitness and all this stuff in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. The, the genetics were bred out for the lighter meats. And I think that was part of it. The interesting thing about pork is it's really the one meat that it the flavor of the pork will change seasonally. Meaning, pork that I finish in June or July tastes way different than something that's finished in November or December. Correct. Because of what they're eating, they actually will kind of take on the flavor of whatever it is they're eating. Uh, I think that's why you know chestnut and acorn finished hogs are such a delicacy. They are. Um, and man, that's a lot of work. I mean, I, I've I've thought about that, but it's like, oh my gosh, the number of oak trees you'd have to have, and the number of years it takes to get an oak tree to maturity. And See, and what that, all that makes me think of though is for someone that's looking to get into the business, if you went out and found an oak thicket where other people see a problem, I see a solution. So oh, absolutely, there's Especially a lot of standing oaks out there, and one big mature oak, the mass that they produce is absolutely insane. It's right. In the fall here in my backyard, if you go out in the fall, 
it sounds like it's raining when the mast is dropping. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a constant. And I'm just thinking, that's food. That's all oh, I know. food. We, we've got an oak tree, um, well, had an oak tree at the, the base of our driveway that, unfortunately, uh, you know, we thought it was still very healthy. I mean, the, the thing was, oh, my gosh, probably five foot in diameter, the Chippenick oak. Yeah. Uh, and we were told this thing was at least 300 years old, probably closer to 400 years old, which is, you're thinking this thing was a sapling when the Jamestown colony was going south, you know. Wow. Um, and it fell down this year, so I, it, we had to have it all chopped up and, and everything. But, yeah, the amount of acorns in the front yard, I mean, you know, the squirrels were happy. Uh, I, I didn't didn't like, you know, going over those things with the, the lawnmower. It's like you know, <laughs> flying ballistic missiles everywhere. And yeah. Send the children inside for cover for half an hour, but um, – yeah, it's if you you know have access to that or you can lease that. Um, I mean, you can definitely raise your own pork if you've got a few acres where you got you know a lot of heavy nut trees and you want to supplement that with some squash or whatever that you raise and you know maybe buy some local um, non-GMO just you know whole kernel corn from another farmer or something to kind of supplement it. You can raise your your own food very inexpensively. Um, yeah, we're kind of getting at the end of an hour here. We kind of maybe wrap up with that. Your thoughts for the person that says, I don't want to be a full-time farmer, but how this level of homesteading with raising some of your own protein kind of dovetails in with prepping. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, prepping is, is doing anything you can to make yourself, you know, less dependent on the overall system. And raising your own food is a huge part of that. And then, um, you know, when you're, if, even if you're not doing it full time, if you're doing it part time, if it's a supplemental income or whatever, you know, okay, like hogs, for instance, and cattle, very social animals. And if you've got the equipment to raise one hog, you know, if you bought some portable fencing and a, a solar charger from like Premier Fence Company or whatever, you've got the equipment to raise three or four or five. So raise one for yourself or two or whatever. And raise three or four others and sell them, you know. Um, do the math, charge what you got to charge, make money at it. Uh, don't be the cheapest guy, you know. And if you do start a business, um, I know you had a guy on a few weeks ago who said, you know, don't collect emails. E- email is my marketing scheme. I collect every email you can and use it. I email. agree. I agree. Uh, it's, it's, it is the most valuable thing you'll have if you're doing any level of marketing at all. Absolutely. Like if I was going to buy a company, whether it's a farm or whether it's a web hosting company, I'm buying the customer base. And that email is to a large degree your customer base. Yeah. And then you can use a system like, you know, MailChimp, you know, which is free. You know, I mean, they try and sell you on the upgrades, but it's a phenomenal system. Free. So if you're starting your own business, I mean, well, you're not paying 20 or 25 bucks a month for constant contact or whatever. But, um, you know, so if you can if you can raise some of your own and supplement your income, well, now you've got some redundancy in, in your your financial side, and, and obviously that's a preparation. Um, if you are doing it more full time, like I am, you know, when a tree falls down uh, in a field, well, obviously I got to go cut that up, but uh, to get it out of the field, we can use the field. But it's it's twofold. I mean, I'm I'm working for the for the business, yes, but then I'm cutting firewood that I'm going to burn to heat my home. And so a lot of your everyday chores really overlap with, you know, being prepared. Uh, you're, you're constantly, you're learning new skills. I mean, like you're learning how to use, you know, a chainsaw. You're acquiring those tools. You might be, you know, acquiring it 
um, for the business, and, and obviously you want to you know check with you know your CPA and, and and things of that nature. But a lot of times, something that you buy as a legitimate need for your business is something you'd want to buy as a prepper anyway. Um, you know, something I had to do this year was buy a rifle for coyote control because we have a lot of coyotes here, and and that's an issue for me. So, you know, I ended up buying a, a Ruger Mini 14 to, to deal with the coyotes, but that's that's going to double as, you know, my, my preparedness rifle. Uh, sure. It's something I would have liked to have had anyway, but I didn't really, you know, but I had a, I had an actual need. I mean, we had some we had some, some canine issues with some chickens, and we had a lot of chickens get killed, and, and you know, it just became an issue. It was something we had to do as investment we had to make for the business, but obviously that, that overlaps into prepping. Um, and then, you know, getting, if it is homesteading or if it's more full time, like it is, you know, really for me now, I mean, it's not a hundred percent of our, our income. Um, we've got multiple income streams, which I would, even if you can do this full time and still tell you to, you know, multiple income streams is very important when you're self-employed. I, as an engineer, I still try and go back and do contract work for old employers and, and it, good relationships and you get paid a whole lot better as a contractor than you do as an employee, but, you, uh, what I find is that you, you really you have time for prepping, and there's there's a definite ebb and flow to farming. I mean, in the summer, a Saturday for me is you know up at 4 a.m. and go and feed and water everybody, and then I got to load up and go to a farmers market up in Indianapolis, and you know I get up there at 7:30 and get set up, and I'm open from 8 to noon, and then I load everything up and I'm back home, and I grab a bite to eat, and it's outside of work. You know that that might be 4 a.m. to someday 10 p.m. I mean, it's a long day. And there's a number of days like that from April through November. I mean, it's it's tough. But then this time of year, literally, my outdoor work is less than an hour. You know, so my biggest job is, you know, taking naps with schnauzer in front of the wood stove. You hmm. know, making sure that the wood stove's loaded up and spending time with my kids. And, and so kind of what I found is that, you know, the ebb and flow of farming kind of really ties into something that, you know, you become seasonal as a human being. Which I think is a natural state, by the way. It really is, and I never understood that until I started farming, and yeah. particularly until we started doing it on more of a full-time basis. And then you get time to learn new things like, uh, you know, what I'm going to be doing in the next next couple of weeks. i got a buddy of mine that's really encouraged me to try, you know, uh, making maple syrup. We've got all these, these hardwood maples all over our farm. i got them in my front yard, you know. That sounds like money waiting to happen, dude. It could be. It could be. But I don't know. 55 gallons of sap for, for one gallon. A gallon of, so, yeah. A lot of, talking about something that's a lot of work. But anyway, you, you get time to learn stuff like that and, and spend with your family. And, uh, you know, it's just you know, being, truly being a, a free man and being your own boss. And um, for me, it's just kind of all, you know, I started listening to a podcast a year ago, uh, that same friend that, wants me to get in, try the maple syrup, you know, got me turned on to you. And it, like, I had all these interests and I was doing some of this stuff and I, but I really hadn't articulated it as, you know, being prepared. It's just like, well, gosh, it seems smart to make sure I've got, you know, three to six months of living expenses in the bank and I got some extra food at home because, hey, when it snows out here, the electricity can go out and we might be stranded for two or three days, which last winter we were. Um, but we had the wood stove and we had food and we didn't care. Um, but just, you know, it, it helps, at least it helped me. I, I mean, I felt like, I felt like Neo. Okay. I mean, I felt like I unplugged from the matrix. Um, the farther I got into farming, and then especially as I started listening to the podcast, it was just kind of like, 
it just all sort of came together for me. And um, your, your business, at least for me now, my business and my family and prepping, it's just all intertwined. And we started homeschooling this year. And uh, I should really say my wife started homeschooling. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm here here to help, and but that's really something that she's taken on and felt led to do. Um, and I think really, you know, the the podcast really kind of helped me articulate all that and 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 bring it all together and and solidify it for me. So it's you know it's the last uh, year year and a half, and you know it's been rough. You know, you lose a job and and everything, but honestly, looking back, it's it's one of the best things that probably has ever happened to me. Yeah, I can I can agree with that on a lot of levels. Leaving corporate America for me was the best thing I ever did. I honestly believe I was headed for a heart attack by 45. Um, and and today I feel like you know I I have this long wonderful life ahead of me, and our paths are the same but different, you know. And I think that that's that's the big thing about this community is that we all look to each other and then take from each other. Uh, the example that we want to live. So there's people listening to you today that will never own and operate a farm in the conventional sense, but they can do the same things you're doing in miniature. They can maybe raise, you know, they can raise 25 birds uh, a, a year. Uh, that's, that's a, that's a bird every other week. Yeah. And that wouldn't be very difficult to do. And even, like you said, butchering chicken sucks, but if you space that out and you butch a half, butcher half a dozen here and there, it's not a big deal. Right, or maybe butchering fifty that you're like, oh, I hate this. Yeah, yeah, or maybe once you once you get it down, you know, then you just make a day out of it. You say, hey, you know, this this Saturday is chicken butchering day, and yep, you know, we're gonna put fifty birds in the freezer, and and, and we're gonna be done. And uh, you know, maybe you get to a point where you you don't want to. You know, we raised three thousand chickens last year. Maybe you don't want to do that, but maybe you want to raise a couple of hundred. Mm-hmm. And put fifty in your freezer and sell the rest to uh, to friends and families and. You know, kind of support your income a little bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's what you know. Look, what whatever it is you want to do, go, go and do it. Make it happen. It's a lot of sacrifice. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of long days, long long nights. There's nights I you know feeding livestock at midnight in the rain by the headlights of the truck and and just like you know why got me. But whatever it is. That your passion is, I, like I firmly believe that we're all wired up by God to do something, and you need to figure out what that is and go and do it. And obviously, you're doing that, and I'm doing that. And not that it's without frustration; it's not. There are days you're ready to, you know, quit throwing the towel, but <laughs> you can come back down to earth uh, pretty quick. But um, you know, figure out what that is and, and go and do it and, and make it happen. Whatever, if it's if it's livestock, if it's gardening, if it's fixing cars at your home instead of working for a dealership. I mean, whatever it is. Um, one thing my dad used to tell me every every day when I was a little kid was, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. But there's nothing worse than being miserable, and I was there. I mean, I liked engineering. It's just all the trappings that came with it that I hated. Um, sure. You know, it, there's nothing worse than getting up every day and going to a job you hate. So we just would like to encourage people, figure out what it is and get your family on board with it, and if they support you, go for it. Awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. Hey, Darby, thank you for joining us today. You want to tell folks how they can find out more about what you're doing? 
Yeah, sure. Um, you can you can check out our website. It's um, it's SimpsonFamilyFarm.com, and uh, you know I'd be happy to uh, you know if people want to send emails or whatever, I'd be happy to try and answer any questions. Uh, particularly if people have questions about beef, chicken, and pork, uh, or turkey, um, or you know eggs or or what have you. Um, you can also look for us, you know, at some, some local Indianapolis area farmers markets, um, or at the Indianapolis winter farmers market, uh, every Saturday right now. And we're at Benford farmers market in the summer, but all that stuff's updated on our website and people can check us out and, uh, would love to maybe hear from or meet, you know, any other listeners out there in central Indiana. Um, and if we can help somebody out and give them some guidance, we'd be happy to, uh, to do that and provide them with resources on, how to start a successful farming business. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what I'd like to do is I like to have people, if you guys have questions for Darby, he sounds like a great guest to have back on to go deeper into some of these individual things like raising cattle or raising pork or what have you. And I'm sure some of you guys have some questions. If you send those to me with question for Darby in the uh, subject line, if I collect enough of them to do it, we'll get in touch with him and, and see if he'll come back on. I'm sure you'd be happy to do that. I would be more than happy to do that. I love sharing and educating people and um, because I like I said earlier I, I think it's in our national security best interest to uh, you know uh, have lots of multiple people out there you know doing this so that it's you know it, it is decentralized truly it's decentralized and we do get back to local food and healthy food that's nutritious you know you can pay a farmer now or you can pay a doctor later but, yeah yeah you know, one parting thought know your farmer know the source of your food, know how they do stuff. You should know your farmer better than your doctor, your attorney, your CPA. Uh, we are, for God's sake, we're putting food into you. You know, everybody else is doing something external. Um, what we're doing is internal. So ask questions, become an educated consumer, and and support your local economy. I completely agree with that. Know your farmer, get involved with CSAs, do whatever you have to get in touch with your food supply. And I'm also with you on the national security issue. That's why I'm so big on it for individuals. I think we need farms your size, farms that are bigger, farms that are smaller, and we need individuals growing your own food. And I'll tell you what will make you willing to pay 15 bucks for a pasture-raised chicken, uh, going out there, breaking the ground, and growing some of your own food. You'll have an appreciation for the labor on the input side. Yeah, and, and you start to want to do, and all of a sudden when you want to do business with people, you find ways to make it happen. Uh, yeah, one interesting facet of becoming a small business owner is, you know, not that I'm like completely anti-Walmart. I mean, we still buy stuff at Walmart, but I support the local businesses. If I can buy it, I don't care that it costs more to go to the local Ace Hardware store, but it's owned by a guy that lives in my hometown. And it just really changes. You just have a whole paradigm shift on, on how you view business and local economy. And, yeah, look, even if you never do this as a business, have a garden. Get get some egg-laying hens. I mean, it's the equivalent of having a cat. I mean, that's how much work they are. Um, you can feed and water a cat. You can take care of some laying hens. And just start raising a little bit of your own food, even if you're in suburbia. What what are your thoughts on this? Because this is kind of where I'm going with it. I don't know that I want to really get intensive with raising chickens for meat, but there are a lot of good dual-purpose birds out there, and you can get a rooster and you can let one or two broods go to fruition, and you can kind of and you're not going to get kind of that quick growing and maybe the level of uh, tenderness of the meat. You're going to get tougher birds, but it, you know what are your thoughts on maybe trying to grow? 15 to 30 birds a year that way that would be eventually uh, slaughtered off. 
Yeah, you can do it. Um, you know, it depends on if you're wanting to supplement them with grain or not. I, you know, if you're if you're not wanting to use any grain, you got to have a lot of acreage. So I would, you know, you want them working, you know, to cut that feed bill, but you might still want to supplement them too. Sure. Um, you can do it, and a, probably a couple of um, really good breeds. You want to look at some of the larger breeds. Um, uh, great like one. Buff Orpingtons. Yeah, uh, Buff Orpingtons are good. Rhode Island Reds. I mean, the roosters get pretty good size. Yeah. Um, and the hens are very docile, very easygoing. Uh, Aust- black Australor pins really good. But, you know, your 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 uh, your roosters don't get as but they're, they're a bigger bird. There are some others out there I really don't have any experience with. Uh, and, and, you know, another tip, work with a good local hatchery. If you're in the Midwest, uh, Myers Hatchery out of Ohio is really good, or Townline Hatchery out of southern Michigan is very good. But, um, you know, just uh, you know, call and ask them. A lot of those people that, that work there, especially the family-owned places like Townline, I mean, they'll, you know, the guy that owns the place is the, the guy that answers the phone most of the time. So, you know, he can he can tell you exactly what it is you're looking for, but definitely doing more of a free, true free range concept is is absolutely possible. You're looking at probably using portable poultry netting, uh, keep predators out. Uh, predation is the biggest issue. I mean, sure. it, it, the chickens on the low end of the stick. You know, I mean, coons, fox, coyotes, wild dogs, they all feast on chicken. Absolutely, it's amazing what a weasel can do. You. Uh, I remember I was a kid. I saw this chicken climbing a tree. That's what I said to my dad. And it was a freaking weasel. And that weasel had to be 25%, 30% the weight of that chicken. And yeah. he was dragging a chicken up a tree. I went, Dad, the chicken's dead, but he's climbing a tree. <laughs> yeah. Thank God we've never had an issue with a weasel. I did have an issue with a family of raccoons yeah. last year. And... Um, the problem with weasel is they can get into anything. That, oh, yeah. That, you know, that's – with coons, it's, if you can make a, sm- a hole small enough, they can't fit in. Uh, well, they'll figure out how to open stuff, but yeah. but, yeah. but a weasel, if, it, if you can stick your thumb through it, that, that sucker can probably squeeze in there. Right, yeah. No, we, we, um, yeah, we lost quite a few chicks, and in my case, I made the hole big enough and that uh, the raccoon uh, figured out real fast what a – double lot fuck out of a 12 <laughs> <laughs> well cool man hey thanks again for joining us today folks uh, again if you want to check out uh, Darby's website it's simpsonfamilyfarm.com and uh, we'll have links of course to today's show notes and uh, Darby thanks for joining us today man more than happy to do it Jack and be happy to uh, come back at any time just folks let you know let Jack know what it is you're interested in and we'll be happy to talk about it all right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Darby Simpson. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd.